So it's the fourth Sunday of Advent, and while we might want to, might be ready to jump ahead to tomorrow or the day after and start celebrating, we are encouraged to learn to wait for the final coming of Jesus Christ with Mary this Sunday. In our passage, Mary waits for the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, King, and Lord of the world, and we wait for Jesus Christ's final coming in glory. Now, the story of God's work of saving the world is very often moved forward by miraculous conceptions. But Mary's is of a, of a different order than all the other ones we would have seen beforehand, Abraham and Sarai being the first. Mary has never been with a man. She conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and was with child as a virgin. Now, to be honest, this might seem a little implausible to some of you. It could be that you think it's just simply impossible the child would be born from a virgin. I hear the objection, and it does sound kind of outrageous, especially in our time of modern medicine, but I would respectfully ask you to consider just the way that Scripture sees it. It's interesting to just see that Scripture doesn't really ex explain this. It just assumes that the loving Creator God is powerful enough to do this act of creation. So if you grant that there's a God and that he is the creator and sustainer of the world, it seems that it's plausible, at least, that a child could be born from a virgin. So Mary conceives, and she goes to her cousin Elizabeth. And when Mary gets there, Elizabeth's child leapt for joy, and she was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth blesses Mary for her faith and obedience to God. And in response to this blessing, Mary praised God with what we now call the Magnificat. In it, Mary praises God for salvation, for his mercy, and for turning the world upside down. The proud are scattered, the mighty fall as the humble are exalted, and the poor are filled as the rich are sent away empty. This whole song is a song of deep faith, because on the surface, none of this has happened yet. But Mary knows who God is, that he is merciful and faithful and holy. So she trusts that these things will occur, not abstractly, but in the person of her son, Jesus. But Mary had to wait, not only for the fruition of pregnancy, but for all of her son's life to see God's purposes fulfilled in him. Now that's a lot of waiting so a question we should ask is, how did she wait so long? What did she do? How did she know, what did she know to wait so well? She learned to wait because she knew why she was waiting, who she was waiting for, and how to wait well. So today, let's learn the answers to these questions as we turn to the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. So why are we waiting? The first clue we get to why we are waiting is in verse 47. Mary says, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, it's only logical that if God's, God is Mary's Savior, then she needs to be saved from something. Now, Mary, like the rest of humanity, needs a Savior because humanity is unfaithful to God and enslaved to sin. Now, we could take this all, this all, in sor all sorts of uh, directions. Um, we could talk about, uh, it, but the fact is that sin affects 
all aspects of our lives, how we think, how we feel, how we act. But we will content ourselves with the three aspects of human sin that God confronts in the Magnificat. Pride, power, and wealth. In verses 51 and 52, Mary praises God because he has scattered the proud, brought down the mighty, and sent the rich away empty. In Luke's gospel and throughout scripture, there is a very consistent critique of pride, control, and riches as idols of the human heart that we value and worship over all else and above all else. Idolatry is an ever-present and consistent theme in scripture, but in our culture, we mostly use the word to describe people we think well of or people we would want to be like, people we are maybe jealous of. I would love to have the singing voice of Hugh Jackman and the speaking voice of Benedict Cumberbatch. It so happens that I really like these actors, and you might say I idolize them. But true idolatry is much more than that. True idolatry is more about what we worship. Two examples from our secular society gets idol at idolatry quite well. Neil Gaiman, the uh, fantasy novelist uh, in his book American Gods, paints a world of the old gods and the new gods at war. The old gods being like uh, Thor and Odin. And the new gods having names along the lines of media and technology. This is how media describes herself in the book. I'm the idiot box. I'm the TV. I'm the all-seeing eye in the world of the cathode ray. I'm the little shrine the family gathers to adore. The main character, Shadow, asks, you're the television or someone in the television? Lucy, media, responds, the TV's the altar. I'm what people are sacrificing to. What do they sacrifice, asks Shadow. Their time, mostly. Sometimes, each other. In our society, we don't set up altars on high places to our idols as Israel did ages ago. We give our time and energy and life to our gods. Our lives are the altars. Here's another example. The secular author uh, David Foster Wallace said, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. What we worship gives us meaning and purpose. What, what we worship is oftentimes what drives us and motivates us. It is our end goal and purpose, our telos, as Father Caleb preached about last week. At the bottom of our idols is a vision of what we think the good life is. What we imagine life should be like. We think that if we could get these things, then we would be happy. We would have enough. So how do we get these things? We spend time on them, by thinking about them, by pursuing them, by worshiping them. John Calvin said, we are idol-making factories. And pride, control, and wealth are three of the most prevalent idols in our hearts. Now, pride, most basically, is the idol of self. Mary says that the Lord scatters the thoughts of their hearts. The proud person makes them the center of their life. Their desires, their feelings, their aspirations are the center of reality, the center of meaning. Well, that sounds pretty bleak, and I'm sure most of, most of us probably wouldn't think we're not that prideful. Or maybe we just kept our pride in check to be socially acceptable. But one of the ways that pride most commonly manifests itself 
is by judging and excluding others who are different than us. When was the last time you quietly judged people who were different than you? Perhaps, you were, perhaps they were wealthier than you, or from a different part of the world, or of a different political persuasion. Maybe they had something you wanted, or maybe you just wanted to thank God that you are not like those people. Have any of us judged someone lately? Then we, too, worship at the altar of pride. Pride is kind of like an arch idol. All our other idols are born out of it. It is an ever-present desire to be more, have more, and be enough. So let's see how the idolatry of power and wealth come out of pride. Mary said that God throws down the mighty or powerful. Now in our culture, power is a pretty complex word. There's a lot of concern right now about the powerful and the powerless, those who are marginalized and those who marginalize. It seems, however, if I'm reading the situation correctly, that the current solution is simply to take power from the powerful and give it to the powerless. This is simply not a solution. Because all this reveals is that for both the powerless and the powerful, power, which we could call the desire to be in control, is an idol. That said, we cannot miss, especially in our cultural moment, that by and large, God in Scripture is on the side of the powerless. Jesus spent a lot of time with the marginalized and the outcasts. Not because they were sinless, but because they knew they needed help. And because those in power often used their power to abuse those on the edge. Wherever you are in the social, economic, or power spectrums of our society, we all want more power and more control, and we always think that if we had the power, we would do it right. This is the idol of control. And finally, Mary praises God for filling the hungry with good things and sending the rich away empty. Now everyone knows, especially around Christmas, that there are three things you don't talk about with other people. Your politics, your religion, and your checkbook. In church, you can talk about religion as long as everyone else agrees, but not money or politics. Well, scripture talks about all three, so here we go talking about wealth for a moment. Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Luke, is kind of harsh on the wealthy, if we're honest. In response to the rich young ruler's rejection of Jesus, he says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But it isn't money itself that's the problem in Scripture. It's what money allows people to do. It allows people to idolize self-sufficiency. This is how one biblical scholar puts it. Wealth in the Gospel of Luke is a temptation to prestige and security apart from God. Wealth, either having it or wanting it, represents the desire to be self-sufficient. So when you drive around Destin, you can see 
a pretty big divide between the haves and the have-nots, the wealth and the wealth, those who don't have it. And it's easy to say, if only the wealthy shared their wealth, things would be better. Or maybe it would be easy to say, if only those lazy bums would just get up and pick themselves up, it would be better. But the real issue is that everyone, the wealthy and the poor, are both seeking to find their security and their sense of purpose through money and things. They're both wrong. We all want to be independent, self-sufficient, and not reliant on God. Money is simply a physical representation of the idol of self-sufficiency. Why does Mary need to be saved? Why do we need to be saved? Because we worship at the altar of pride, power, and wealth, but we were made to worship at the altar of God, our creator and redeemer. We need a savior who will scatter us throw us down and empty us of our idolatry so that we can be pulled back together, rightfully exalted and full of truly good things. Mary needed a savior and so do we, but perhaps some of you are not convinced yet. Maybe somewhere out there, someone out there is thinking, I've been pretty successful. I think eventually I'll have enough. I'll be satisfied. I, I don't need this God thing. I too have this desire for having and being enough, is this deep gut feeling with a slight thrill of hope that the next thing that I get, the next, next paycheck, the next item I purchase will satisfy my longing for enough. It will fill that bottomless pit that always seems to just want a little more. My pride says that eventually when I've acquired enough, I'll be content. But every time I get something new or experience something better, it's just not enough. I'm never quite content enough. And I start feeling like I'm never enough. Okay, okay, but maybe if I had some more money, I quit this job, go get a law degree, become a lawyer, and I get cash money, then I would be enough. But then comedian Jim Carrey, who I saw at the Grinch last night, pops up and says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything that they ever dreamed of so they can see that it is not the answer. I keep waiting for pride, control, and wealth to deliver, deliver on their promises, but they never do. And I wonder if they ever will. So while I respect what you're saying, maybe you will one day find contentment, I have to respectfully disagree. It seems like nothing will ever be enough to fill the desire to have and be enough. We fill our lives up with jobs and family and activities and sports and TV to fill that enough void, and they simply never do. We keep waiting, pursuing, and hoping, and we walk away scattered, broken, and empty. We need help. We need a savior. So who are we waiting for? In the Magnificat, Mary shows us why we are waiting, and now we can see who we are waiting for. We are waiting for God and Christ to save us. In our pride, we think we can fix ourselves, but in reality, we're broken. 
We keep trying to put ourselves back together, but we can't. We fill our lives and find ourselves wanting. Israel tried to do it. A whole nation for hundreds of years tried to fill this void apart from God, even as a people who were called out and blessed by God to be a blessing. They pursued idols and worshipped other gods, but they were scattered, thrown down, and empty. The idols didn't deliver on their promises. Why? Why do the idols never seem to work? Why is it never enough? Because humanity was created for so much more. They were created for relationship with God. We were created to live and worship God. So when we seek to fill that desire with other things, with temporal things, with things that are not eternal, are not full of life and meaning, we are actually committing adultery against God. We are going against what we were created for. But friends, God is not like us. If, if someone were to do that to us, we would walk away, try to avoid them. But God doesn't abandon us. Even as he reveals to us the consequences of our infidelity, that we are broken, thrown down, and empty, he heals us in Jesus Christ. He takes our broken, thrown down, and empty selves and recreates us in Jesus Christ. How? How does God do this? First, Jesus lives the perfect life for us. Unlike us, Jesus lived in complete assurance and reliance on God. God the Father was enough for him. He would provide. He was in control. And because Jesus totally relied on God, he was humble, selfless, trusting, generous. He was fully human. Jesus had enough and was enough because he was satisfied in God. He lived the perfect life, but he didn't just do it to show us that it could be done so we could pick ourselves up and try it ourselves. I'd be fairly prideful of him. He did it for us. He lived the perfect life for us, and he died the death that is the result of our, of our pride, the death that, frankly, we deserve. Because, friends, when we are prideful, controlling, selfish, miserly, we hurt other people. We hurt people we know, and we hurt people we don't know who could benefit from our generosity. When we try to control our families and make them do what we think is best, we hurt them. When we judge others, we're hurting them and ourselves. And friends, according to Scripture, we are above all hurting and being unfaithful to God himself, our creator and redeemer. And the scary thing is, no matter how much we try, we just can't stop doing those things. We are guilty for our damage done to God and to others, and we are powerless over our sin. But in Jesus Christ's death, he takes all of our sin and all the damage that we've done and destroys the power of sin over us and forgives us for all the damage that we've done against ourselves, God, and others. 
When we believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are united to Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives us the life, death, and resurrection that Jesus died for us. This means three things, friends. That we are totally forgiven for all that we've done. In church language, we are justified. We are given the enough of Jesus. Friends, we don't have to try to make ourselves more loved, more worthy, more good, because in Jesus we are infinitely loved. And we are given the power and guidance of Christ's Spirit to make us like Jesus. We are being sanctified. This is the healing that Jesus offers. We are put back together, exalted in Jesus, and filled with the greatest of gifts, life in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the good news of the Magnificat. God in Christ has done all of this for us. But, you might be asking, why is it still so hard? Why do I still struggle and endlessly try to fill myself up, always seeking more? Why am I still prideful, seeking control and security? Frankly, it's because we are in between Christ's victory and its final consummation. We are in the cleanup operation between D-Day and V-Day. Frankly, if you're not a Christian, you struggle because you've not accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior and been filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you are a Christian, you are struggling against your old self and the power of the Holy Spirit. What do we do with this struggle? We've learned why we need a Savior. We've learned who the Savior is. What do we do as we wait? Like Mary, who received the gift of God and had to wait for its fulfillment, we wait in faith and active obedience. So faith. Mary had faith that God would do what he says. She trusted God that God was good and would do good. Mary's example encourages us to believe the gospel and walk in it. Christians, we are always in deep need of being gospeled because we are constantly tempted to return to our old way of life, our old idols, to the way of death. Hear this. You are a new creation in Christ. You've been given the life of God and Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit to live in faith and joyful obedience. So walk in it. Now I've said a lot of things this morning, and perhaps some of you out there are still have still have doubts or if questions that you might not feel are appropriate for church, or maybe you believe in a God of some sort and you aren't sure about this Jesus person. If any of this is the case, I want to invite you to try the Alpha Course. It's a series of conversations that freely explore life, spirituality, and the foundations of the Christian faith in a truly honest, friendly, and open environment. It is a course built for the hard questions of life, and there is absolutely no judgment, and maybe, you'll be thankful, no preaching. It starts February 11th at the 6.30 p.m. in the local market. I know some of you are out of t from out of town. I just want to encourage you. These happen all over the country and the world. Uh, if you want to look for an Alpha course in another place, talk to me or just Google it. If, however, 
you don't really have any more questions. And you're just waiting for someone to invite you to give your life to Christ Jesus. Here's your opportunity. Are you tired of seeking without finding? Jesus Christ is the one you've sought your whole life. If you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, even now, today is the moment. I want to invite you to pray to God and invite Jesus to become the Lord and Savior of your life. So we have faith, we have obedience. Now Mary did not only believe, she didn't just believe God, she obeyed God. And just Jesus said later in Luke that those who believe and obey are his brothers and sisters. So how can we practice obedience as we wait for Christ's return? Let me suggest two of many ways. We can be obedient to God by putting sin to death and putting on Christ, and we can be obedient to God by witnessing to others. Let's consider the first. A central part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ is allowing the Holy Spirit to put to death the things that keep us from pursuing Christ and his kingdom. And in the sermon, we focused on our pride, our desire to be in control, and our desire to be self-sustaining. Now, you might be tempted at this point to try to follow really rigid rules and stop sinning on your own. Or you might think, oh, I'm just a sinner, and God will forgive me. Neither of these are the right response. Because this is the gospel that Christ preaches and gives us. You've been accepted and loved so that you obey. So how do we obey? Let me offer a few thoughts on this. By the Holy Spirit-infused imitation, practice, prayer, and community. We obey by imitating the humility of tr and trust of Christ. He was humble, and he calls us to imitate his humility. And that is the opposite of pride, control, and self-sufficiency. This leads us to practice humility, to practice Jesus' life, loving others as he loved them, serving others as he served them, all through the power of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> And friends, we can't do this in our own power. As we do this, we pray consistently that the Holy Spirit would make us like Jesus. And friends, we can't do this alone. We are not, the Christianity is not a relationship of one. It's all of us together as Christ as our head. So we need to do this in community. The, the community of believers in the church as we encourage one another to Christ-likeness. So remember, imitation, practice, prayer, and community. Putting to death our sin and putting on Christ is a lifelong and holy effort, but one that we are called to in faithful obedience. So what and where is the Holy Spirit working in you this morning? The second way we can be obedient is witnessing to others about Christ. Now oftentimes, we get stuck here. How do I share my faith? We know we're supposed to, but how? Sometimes we think we just, you know, shove the truth in somebody's face and let the chips fall there where they may and, you know, let it go. But there's a simpler way. And friends, let's, I'll be honest with you, this is difficult, even for me as a pastor. Sometimes it's something I kind of want to avoid. But recently I, I, I've come to sort of take a different tact on this and the tact that I want to invite all of us to enter into. I've simply started inviting people to Alpha. 
And this is an easy way to, to spread the gospel, to encourage people to just explore. You're not forcing them down, you're not forcing the gospel down their throats, you're just inviting them to come explore. Now I've heard a lot of questions about how do I invite people to Alpha? What is Alpha? I want to invite you all to uh, come to, on January 13th and 20th, after both services, I'm going to offer a short training seminar on how to invite people to Alpha. Please put it on your calendar and attend. Mary waited in faith and obedience for the birth of her son, the Savior of the world. Like her, let us wait in faith and obedience for Christ's final return in glory, where our faith will be sight and all our desires will be filled when we see God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Abba, Father, thank you for this time where we learn to wait. Thank you for moments of rest and quiet and the chaos and busyness of this holiday season. We ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit to encourage us in our faith, to grow in us faith, to grow in us a desire for you and to lead us into obedience and love. We pray this all in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.